Hello and welcome to another episode of Guess That Record. I am your host, Jackson Reed. This is the show where we talk about music and try to figure out which album I pulled from my collection. Today, the podcast reaches double digits, as this is the 10th episode of Guess That Record. When I started this show, I didn't think it would amount to much, but it's been such a rewarding experience, and I always have to thank the listeners who have tuned in every step of the way. With that being said, it's time to introduce our guest. He's a musician who served as the bass player and lead vocalist for the band Spirit from 1971 to 1973. He then pursued a career in entertainment law while continuing to record and perform music. He can safely say he's the only person to perform at Carnegie Hall and provide legal services to Stevie Ray Vaughan. His newest album, Somewhere in West Texas, is available now. I'm pleased to welcome Al Stahaley to guess that record. How are you doing, Al? Very well, Jackson. Thank you for having me. Of course, yeah. So where are we talking to you from today? Uh, I'm at my office in Houston, Texas. Awesome, awesome. I've never been to Texas before, but uh, I'm sure uh, sure the weather is good there today. <laughs> <laughs> it is, uh, as you have read in the papers these days, yeah, it's, I think as I was driving over here, it said, 100 degrees feels like 106. Mm -hmm. where, where are you now? I'm in Calgary, Alberta. Ah. Up in Canada, yeah. I'm jealous already, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's great to be speaking with you. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting to kind of learn about, you know, you and your career, because I think it's, it's super interesting how, you know, you're both a musician and a lawyer, and, you know, clearly both avenues have, created a lot of noteworthy experiences for you. So I'm excited to hear more about your story today. Well, uh, most people assume that after uh, the rock and roll days uh, that I went back to law school, but that's not the way it went. I, mm -hmm. I grew up in Austin and all through Austin High and uh, UT as an undergraduate and University of Texas also as a uh, as law school, uh, I always played in bands. And in fact, the reason I went to law school was because as an undergraduate, I was in a band with two law students and we were a popular band at all the frat houses and all that. And uh, we're making good money for being in, in college, a three-piece band. I was a bass player and a lead singer. And I was actually pre-med and they had and maybe still have a program where you can go to med school after three years if you take all the requirements. And so my three years was coming up. These guys had one more year of law school left and already had families. And uh, they, they got nervous and said, look, you know, you got to, uh, you can't go out to med school. You'll have to leave Austin and have to go to Galveston or Dallas where the med schools are. And go to law school with us just for one year until we graduate and then, then go to med school. Well, I couldn't just hang out because Vietnam was going on. This was mm -hmm. 1967 or whatever. And so I thought, okay, so I actually started law school to keep a rock band together. After the first year, I realized that I'd been tricked. If you finish the first year of law school, you might as well finish the next two because that's the killer year. And so once I got out of law school, I went ahead and took the bar exam to get it over with, knowing that 
I wasn't going to practice law maybe ever, but certainly not till I'd given uh, music a full-time shot. And so that's when I went to L.A. in uh, 71 and got real lucky quickly and joined Spirit when two guys, uh, Mark Andes and Jay Ferguson, left to start JoJo Gunn. And uh, so that's how that happened up to that point. Awesome. Yeah. And um, now I, I always like to start off um, by asking what was like the first song or the first album that you remember hearing that made you take music seriously? Well, gosh, um, it's hard to say, but, you know, as I was, it'd be hard to ignore uh, Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry because uh, I'm from Texas, but not only, you know, both those guys were uh, world-renowned guys. And actually, later on, I ended up backing up Chuck Berry on a number of gigs. Uh, so that was kind of interesting. And and I do, I'll tell you, I remember uh, my mother coming home with an album by Johnny Nash. And... This, at that point, this was, it was his first album, uh, and it was, he sounded kind of like a young uh, Johnny Mathis. It, it was that kind of album. Well, years later, uh, you know, he had that couple of big hits, one in particular I can see clearly now. Mm. And who would have guessed that, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so, I ended up being Johnny Nash's lawyer. Oh, <laughs> he's, he's passed away now, but uh, it's very interesting how the, uh, how the uh, one thing leads to another and then circles back. And that's happened with other people, too, including Doug Somm. But yeah. I would have to say uh, Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry. Yeah, good, good choices for sure. And, and you're mentioning playing with Chuck because I've I've read how like when he went on tour, it was basically like he just went by himself and then would wrangle people to play with him wherever he was that night. Is that sort of what happened with you? Exactly what happened. That, wow. that same band I was telling you about in college, uh, who, by the way, we were called the fabulous Chevelles <laughs> at a time when everybody seemed to name their group after car. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, we were hired to back him up, uh, a night in Houston and two nights in Galveston at a beach club. But we got down to Houston, uh, got set up uh, in the afternoon, uh, ex expecting he would come in and, you know, want to go through some songs. But he not only he didn't show up, the club owner hadn't heard from him, didn't know if he was going to show up. Uh, meanwhile, club is filling up. Uh, club owner sweating bullets and it's time to start the show and he said okay well you guys get started you, you guys start playing and so we started playing about 45 minutes into our set front doors swing open in walks Chuck with his Gibson guitar case in one hand and uh, a blonde white woman in the other hand <laughs> uh, walks up to the stage he always had the promoters and club owners furnishing the backup band and two Fender twin amps. And he walked up stage, opened his guitar case, 
put on his uh, guitar strap around his neck, comes up on stage, kind of nods to us, and just starts playing. He didn't tell us what song. He didn't tell us what key. Had to look around to see where his hands were to see uh, what key he was in. And so, at any rate, that's the way he operated. Uh, and of course, uh, we were with him two more nights and got to know him a little bit. And uh, not that he was, you know, all that forthcoming with, but at any rate, it was sounding great. Well, skip ahead about a year. Uh, so, when I moved to LA, before joining Spirit, uh, I was my first gig in LA was backing up Chuck Berry to San Bernardino Auditorium. So I go backstage before the show and I say, Chuck, I don't know if you remember me, but uh, I worked with you a year or so ago in Texas and Houston and Galveston. I know how you like to work. I know you don't like to tell us what songs you're going to play. But if you could just shout the key, it would be helpful before he'd sung. He just looked at me and said, I'll give you a four-bar intro. <laughs> never mind. He, he, he figured by the time he did one of his signature intros, he ought to have it figured out. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. I didn't even know you you worked with Chuck, so that that's really cool. Um I uh I was wondering, like, how did you like when you were starting out playing music, how did you kind of develop your, you know, your playing, your singing? How did you, uh, how did you get started like actually performing, I guess you could say? Well, I'd have to credit the guitar teacher because he was such a wonderful guy. Uh, actually my cousin loaned me his acoustic guitar, taught, taught me one song by Ricky Nelson. I think mm. it was Poor Little Fool. And, uh, and then I started taking guitar lessons from a really wonderful guy named Wayne Wood, who had uh, toured with some country artists. He played guitar and he played steel guitar. Uh, and he made made it fun. He would send you home the first day being able to play a song. It might be a two-chord song, but he didn't try to make you read music right away. He'd try to slip some of that in later on. Uh, but at some point, some of my classmates, I guess, knew that I played, and they asked me if I'd play a few songs at uh, one of their birthday parties at uh, some little... And I was scared to death. Uh, and and Wayne, the guitar, play, the guitar teacher, came along with me, made sure my guitar was in tune, and backed me up while I played Poor Little Fool by Rick, Ricky Nelson. That was the first song I ever performed uh, live in public. But uh, but Wayne, he was instrumental too, because he, by the way, he later, uh, he taught Eric Johnson. He was Eric Johnson's guitar teacher and uh, other Austinites. But he's the one that uh, sort of coaxed you into singing. Uh, I, I, we were doing venture songs, uh, doing a lot of instrumentals in my high school band. And, uh, and he said, look, you gotta, you gotta, if you're learning chorus design, you gotta try to sing with it too. So he would encourage you to do that. And so then just learn by doing. Mm -hmm. Cool. And, um, 
And so as as you mentioned sort of at the start of the interview, um, you went to went to university, got a law degree, and then decided to move to LA to pursue music. Um, what was uh, like, how did you sort of get your foot in the door once you arrived in LA? Like what were sort of your early gigs, I guess? Well, what happened was the drummer and the last band I was in before I left Texas, he left Austin about eight months before I did. And his name is Curly Smith. And he went to LA. He ended up joining uh, Jay and Mark when they were leaving Spirit to start Jojo Gun. So when I moved to LA, uh, that's how I met the, the two guys that left Spirit. And so Mark Andes, uh introduced me to the remaining members of Spirit. And so that's that's why it happened real quick after I got out there, because I sort of had a built-in connection to that that group. Uh, mm-hmm. I rehearsed with them uh, for a few weeks, uh, and then they decided they you know, asked me to join the group, and that's that's what happened. I knew, I knew about five people, or four or five people when I moved to L.A., but one of them also was Don Henley. Oh yeah, uh, because he had been uh, in a band in Texas, and his band always played in Austin, and we all knew each other. And so, the summer of '71 went out went out there. He was still in Linda Ronstadt's band, but they he and Glenn were in the process of forming the Eagles. And uh, I remember he I remember he called me up one day and said, uh, "Well, I think we got a name for the band, but I don't know if I like it." I said, well, what is it? He said, the Eagles. I said, I think it sounds all right. He said, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. Seems <laughs> like it worked out. It definitely did. Yeah. I, I forgot that Don was from Texas. So that would, yeah, that would make sense. You would know him there. But um, yeah, and it definitely worked out that you were able to get in spirit pretty quick. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think for those who I'd like to explain, you know, for those who maybe aren't familiar with Spirit. Of course, they were a band that started in LA in the late 60s and they sort of achieved like modest success, but they never sort of became like a household name. And really, like their biggest claim to fame uh, in the last few years was when they had the big lawsuit with Led Zeppelin over Stairway to Heaven. But that's a whole other ordeal that kind of happened before you were in the band. But, um, anyways, uh, so the one record that you did with uh, Spirit was in 1972 and the album was called feedback and it was produced by neil young's longtime producer david briggs and i listened to it sort of while preparing for the interview and it was uh, interesting because it was sort of a departure from spirits earlier work which was sort of more kind of psychedelic and this record was more sort of it felt kind of like allman brothers like southern rock uh and yeah so what was the process of working on the album uh, like for you because clearly you had a big say in its direction by writing most of the songs on it uh yeah uh well the when i joined the band randy california was still in the band and uh so i would start out rehearsing he was there but he was having uh some issues and uh and before before we ever recorded the album he left the band. And so at that that point, uh, and this was a couple of months in, 
And so the remaining members, the keyboard player, John Locke and Ed Casty, the drummer, uh, decided they wanted to keep, keep rehearsing and working up songs. So really the, the three of us uh, really put, yeah, I wrote seven of the songs. Uh, John Locke wrote three, two of his were some really cool instrumentals because he was very jazz oriented as, as was the drummer because uh, Ed, Ed was, I mean, I was like, what, 25 when I joined the band. He was already like 50. Uh, <laughs> he's Randy California's uh, stepfather. Mm. And uh, you might remember one of their albums was called The Family That Plays Together. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and so he kind of came from the old jazz school. So he and John Locke were very jazz oriented. And if you heard the album, you heard, which I still listen, love to listen to today, those two John Locke instrumentals, which I thought were really cool. But coming from Texas, yeah, my style of writing was certainly different than the Californians. Um, and my brother, who, before we did the album, uh, took Randy's place. And so he's playing all the lead guitar um, feedback. And he had, at the time, w was playing in Austin with a band called Cracker Jack, which was the rhythm section that had been with Johnny Winter mm. uh, and, and and then Mike Kindred, great keyboard player. They were a wonderful band. And, but he left that band to come join Spirit. Uh, and, and you may remember the bass player for Johnny Winter was Tommy Shannon, mm. who later ended up being with Stevie Ray, part of Double Trouble. So, right. uh, and my brother and I, you know, in Texas, we were, you know, like most Texan rock guys, are kind of more into the blues rock and the English uh, take on blues rock. I mean, we were listening to uh, Jeff Beck group that had just come out with Rod Stewart, and we were listening to a Free, you know, Paul Rogers band. And uh, of course, when Hendrix album came out, that that, that blew everybody's mind. And, Actually, my brother and I got to meet him. Oh, really? Wow. In San Antonio. And, uh, but back to your question, though. So uh, that's what, you know, it was just kind of natural for my songs to probably be more in, like you say, in the Southern rock vein. Uh, the process of putting that one together is kind of interesting because, like I say, it was really all the songs were worked up three piece with. Me on bass, uh, Jean Locke on keyboards, and Casting on drums. And then, well, a couple of the songs that were acoustic songs, you know, I, like Mellow Morning and uh, Right on Time started as, that was an all acoustic song, but then we tried decided, well, let's start it acoustic and then have it go into being a rock song. So, uh, so my brother actually only joined the group, just, I don't know, it seems like, three or four weeks before we went in the studio. And he was only 19 years old. And mm -hmm. when you hear his playing on that album, it's pretty, uh, pretty fantastic. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I uh, it, it's interesting. You were going to bring up uh, mellow morning. Cause I thought that was my favorite song on the album actually. So how did, how did that track come to be? 
that that tell you the truth, that song is just, that's one of those songs that was just talking about what was happening that morning. Mark Andes' brother, Matt, uh, who was the original guitar player in Jojo Gunn, he's and he's the one that wrote their only hit, Run, Run, Run. He's playing all that cool slab guitar. Uh, he had a little place up in Topanga Canyon. That's where mm. that's where most of the guys in spirit and Jojo Gunn were living at that time. And uh, in fact, that's where we rehearsed at Ed Cassidy's house usually. Uh, but I was up at Matt's one morning, and uh, actually the song really just tells what happened. I mean, it's just a very simple thing, but Matt was making what he called cowboy coffee with, yeah. uh, with just coffee grounds at the bottom. And then his buddy, a couple of his buddies came up and uh, <laughs> I, it, it, the song really just describes the thing. And then the only, the only strange thing is when I say let's, uh, the third verse, I guess, when I say, hey, Matt, let's pay a call on Durwood Curly. Hop in the car, we'll come on down. Hope it's not too early. I was referring to Curly, Curly Smith, the drummer that I told you about that was been playing with Jojo Gunn. The reason I call it Durwood is back when we were, before we left Austin, there was a politician named Durwood Curly, and there was an election going on, and some people had those signs in their yard saying, vote for Durwood Curly. And mm. that was kind of a funny name with, of course, being Alsta Haley doesn't give me the right to say anything about <laughs> anybody's name. But anyway, we started calling Curly, our drummer, Durwood. And so uh, I was really referring to uh, Curly the drummer. But when Mellow Morning came out, they started playing it on the radio in Austin. And my mother called and said, Al, Durwood Curly is going around town telling everybody you wrote a song about him. <laughs> well, don't burst this bubble. Yeah, yeah. Afterwards, you would have hit the road with Spirit. And um, on that tour, uh, the one story I've sort of seen linked with you is when you guys performed at Carnegie Hall in New York. So what was uh, what was that show like? Well, I mean, it's you try to tell yourself it's just another gig, but it's not. You know, it's mm -hmm. Carnegie Hall, so I was probably nervous out of my mind. But uh, yeah, Dr. John uh, was the opening act for us. We were the headlining act. So, uh, but one thing that's, that's funny about that is uh, the summer before my last year in law school, I went, worked up in New York City for the summer and I worked uh, for the summer for ASCAP, mm. the performing rights society, kind of like SOCAN in your yep. uh country. And uh, while doing that, uh, I worked myself in a position to where I could be the ASCAP representative to go to all the uh, the concerts coming through town and sort of you know, say hello on behalf of ASCAP and do a little, uh, it was just a, a way for me to, that I figured out to get free tickets to all the concerts. Right. <laughs> ASCAP bought me. And then Phil Maurice was going uh, going out. So I went down and talked to Kip Cohen, and, uh, who, who ran the, Phil Maurice. And he gave me backstage passes to, I could go to any show that summer. And that was 
69. That was, you know, when I was Woodstock summer, all the bands were coming through. It's got Ron Delsener was the promoter who promoted all the concerts, Schaefer concerts in the park in Walman Ring. And uh, so over that summer, I got to know him a little bit because I'd go to the shows, which chat and everything. Well, it so happened that Ron Delsner was uh, promoting this spirit show at Carnegie Hall. And so as we're up the Carnegie Hall, the dressing room is upstairs and, it, and you come down this very narrow stairway to come down to the stage. And as we were coming down to the stage to go on, uh, Ron Delsoner was coming up and we meet on the stairway and he does a double take and said, what are you doing here? I said, you're the guy from ASCAP. I said, I'm working for you tonight. He didn't know in spirit. This episode of Guess That Record is sponsored by Guitar Works. One of Canada's top independent music stores for over 30 years, Guitar Works carries a huge selection of musical instruments from the biggest brands of music, including Gibson, Fender, Martin, Yamaha, and Paul Reed Smith. Visit any of their three Calgary locations or shop online at guitarworks.ca and join the Guitar Perks program to earn money back with every purchase. Guitar Works your total guitar store. This episode of Guess That Record is sponsored by Marvel Marketing. Marvel Marketing is an award-winning digital marketing company headquartered in Calgary, Alberta, working with clients in different industries from all over North America, including Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Marvel Marketing services include website design and development, website maintenance, search engine optimization, public relations services, and social media management, amongst others. To find out more, visit marvelmarketing.ca. This episode of Guess That Record is also sponsored by Recordland, home to the largest selection of music in Canada. Buy, sell, and trade tapes, CDs, and vinyl. Located in Calgary's Inglewood neighborhood on 9th Avenue Southeast, visit them in person or on Instagram at Recordland Calgary. Now, um, so... When you get to 1973, uh, Spirit kind of falls apart. You and your brother put out an album. And then uh, I, I noticed how there's kind of like a bit of a gap between releases for you uh, during kind of the rest of the, the rest of the 70s there. But uh, we now know what you were up to because uh, last year you released uh, Post Spirit 1974 to 1978, which was uh, tracks you worked on in that period. Um, so yeah, how, how did you get those songs put together uh, after they were just kind of sitting there for so long? Well, yeah, let me, I'll tell you the history of that. Uh, yeah, my brother and I did uh, the Haley Brother album, but that's where I learned the value of uh, owning a trade name. It, mm-hmm. was, we were the same lead singers and guitar players and songwriters that had been playing for several years spirit but not using the name spirit anymore uh booking agents couldn't book us to even go out on the road and break even because we didn't have the name anymore mm-hmm. then my brother got an offer to uh, go with jojo gunn when matt andy's left the group so uh, he did that and that's when i thought you know getting these groups and they break up i'm going to try to uh See if I can get a solo deal. I'm, I'm going to try to write songs suitable 
uh, for solo artists. And uh, while all that was going on, I did, actually I did one tour with a friend of mine, Patty Dahlstrom, who was on 20th Century Records, uh, which was, she had kind of an interesting background, uh, backup band. It was me on bass. It was, uh, it's got Michael Knuse from a group called Fever Tree that you may have never heard of, but you could look them up. It was uh, Mark Stein on keyboards, who had been the keyboard player and singer for Vanilla Fudge. Mm. Uh, and then uh, a guy, Steve Lawrence, who played with Ike and Tina Turner. So I started playing gigs around LA and <clears throat> always had really good guys playing with me. And at one point, it uh, looked like uh, I had a deal with Epic because uh, Epic uh, gave me a budget to go do some demos. Uh, John Boylan uh, had become a staff producer and he wanted to produce the demos. And just as, uh, in fact, Greg Geller had been, was an r guy and he said, uh, John Boylan heard your demos, he'd like to produce them. And if, uh, if New York likes them, uh, we'll do a solo deal. So. I said, he said, have you ever heard John, uh, Borland's productions? I said, well, no, I know he used to manage uh, Linda Ronstadt. Uh, and so he sends over uh, a, pre a test pressing of a new band, and I listened to it and thought, that sounds really well done. It's not the kind of music I'm doing, but uh, turned out it was the test pressing of the first Boston album. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wish I still had it. It's probably worth a fortune. Uh, but anyway, we did the demos. Uh, by then, the A&R guy in New York that had liked it had left the band, uh, to, I mean, left the company to start Cleveland International with Meatloaf as his mm. first uh, artist. And so that deal didn't happen. And so that some of those recordings on that post-spirit 74 to 78 were those those recordings okay then i, I finally got a, a solo deal uh, with a new label started the album had steve cropper on guitar had pete sears jefferson starship uh, and also used to play with rod stewart and some of his albums on bass and keyboards, had Al Garth from Logs and Messina playing violin and sax, uh, Gary Malabar on drums, who played on Van Morrison's Moondance album, who played with, had, well, also played on a lot of the Steve Miller hits. Snuffy Walden, who uh, on lead guitar, he used to be in my band doing that era, his later became one of the most important TV music uh, composers. He, everything from West Wing to 30 uh, something, Wonder Years, Roseanne Show, Ellen Show. Anyway, had all these great, great guys, but about halfway into the album, the record company went out of business. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then, so some of those, uh, another, most of those other songs that were on that album you're referring to were a lot of those. In the summer of 79, when that, that, solo, uh, when that record company went out of business, went back to Austin 
thinking it was just for a week or two to visit my parents, ran into a Stevie Wonders engineer who I knew from LA who had a girlfriend in Austin. We were talking and he said, you know Becky Shargo, don't you? And I said, yeah, she used to work at Epic. And he said, well, she's working for Irving Azoff now and he's producing a movie in Houston called Urban Cowboy. Mm. John Travolta and uh, it's going to be kind of like a Saturday night uh, fever with country style. They knew it was going to be a big deal. And he said, she's the music supervisor. You ought to call her up and maybe get a song in there. So I called called her up. She said, yeah, I'll be in Houston next week. Come on down, bring some songs. So I brought some of mine and made some deals to represent some other people's uh, in Austin's songs. Went down, stayed with my buddy that I mentioned earlier, who had had been my drummer in college, taught me into going to law school. And so... He said, yeah, come stay with me while you're down here. And so they got interested in some songs, one of mine and one that Rusty Weir wrote called Don't It Make You Want to Dance. Mine didn't get done, but Rusty's did, and Bonnie Raitt did it, and it was in the movie and on the soundtrack album. Meanwhile, he said, my friend said, did you ever practice law? And I said, no, I pass the bar, but I pay my dues every year. But, uh, he said, well, I want you to come with me down to the courthouse I'll get you some uh, court-appointed cases for guys who can't afford lawyers and you get paid by the county. And I was kind of broke at the time. That deal had just fallen through. And uh, he said, do you have a suit? And I said, no. And so he said, well, get a suit. And so it's going to sound crazy to you, but President Lyndon Johnson's brother was a friend of our family's. Mm. And... uh, it helped him out. Uh, he, he was towards the end of his life and he had some health issues. And when he died, he left uh, his house to, and his thing to my, my parents and my father was the executor of the will. He had died about four or five months before that. So I went to Austin and got a couple of Lyndon Johnson's brother's suits and came back to Houston and trotted down to the courthouse with my friend Mike and he took me to introduce me to the judges this is my old pal Alistair Haley we used to be in a band together in college he's officing with me and because I was with Mike they appointed me criminal cases when I'd never practiced law before (laughs) yeah the office and say I've got this case what do I do you know Anyway, one thing led to another. I got a girlfriend, and it, I was I was there for a year before I admitted that I was actually living in Houston. And went back to LA and got my stuff. But also, uh, right in that time period, I got a call from a drummer I knew in California who asked me if I wanted to go do a European tour with John Cipollina and Nick Ravenitis. And I said yes, and so. It's been a long and winding road, Jackson. Uh, I, I should stop this uh, narrative and let you ask your question. Oh yeah, well no, that's it's all cool stories. I mean, um, and yeah, so I guess around that time, then you were like starting to do law stuff while still continuing music. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Even in Houston, um, I was still doing gigs. I was kind of like a criminal lawyer doing the day and. 
uh, rocker by night. <laughs> In fact, uh, Louis Messina, who's at Pace Concerts, uh, he put me on, you know, now he has, uh, he's the concert promoter for most, uh, several of the biggest acts in the country. But uh, at that time, he had a company called Pace Concerts, and he had me open for the Jefferson Starship, open for Roy Orbison, uh, with Rami Lou Harris. Uh, I even opened solo one time for Rodney Dangerfield. Oh. Like a weird gig. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, and then I got, like I said, called off to do the, uh, the European tour for a few weeks. And then at the end of that tour, uh, we did an album in Germany that was really basically just the songs. We went in the studio and did it, but it was the songs we'd been doing on that tour. And it's still out in circulation somewhere. It's uh, called Monkey Medicine. And it I was a Negravenitis John Cipollino group is what it was called. And, uh, we had three of my songs on there that I sang. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it, it mentioned, you mentioned it in your bio, like, you know, did legal services for Stevie Ray Vaughan, of course, but like, <laughs> who are some other people that you've represented? Well, over the years, it's, uh, I sort of represent Blue October from, uh, from many of those guys. Uh, Stevie was kind of uh, the first uh, significant entertainment law client because uh, like I said I was doing some criminal but I knew I didn't want to stay with the criminal law you know I wanted to transition into entertainment law so uh, but then also I represented Doug Som uh, I represented in Texas Tornadoes uh, Doug Som Flacco Manis uh, like I said I ended up representing Johnny Nash uh, some matters uh I can see clearly now guy. And sometimes my clients, sometimes they're the artists, sometimes it's a company, you know, it's a management company, a production company, a record company. So over the year, over the years, it's been all kinds of people. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul Kantner from the Jefferson airplane. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of, a lot of acts uh, that uh, trying to make it that don't make it, and uh. yeah. <laughs> um, and so another thing that that kind of I guess happened sort of when you're beginning to you know take on the legal work while still working on music, you released a solo album finally called Stahely's Comet uh, in 1982, and. Um, so did it finally, like, was it kind of vindication for you to get that chance to finally make your own album like that? Yeah, and, and the way I've, way that happened really kind of was an extension of the uh, touring with Cipollina Gravinitis over in Europe because that's where uh, we did that tour. We did the album I mentioned, Monkey Medicine. Uh, and the reason they were touring together is they each had solo albums out on a German label called Line Records. And and they sometimes worked together in the Bay Area, but uh, they each had separate albums out and they were touring to promote their own separate albums. Well, and I, I started learning about, okay, they, they, they did the album and they licensed it to Germany for Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, or maybe it was for all of Europe. And, 
Uh, and so I started getting knowledgeable about the whole licensing thing. And uh, there's probably something you've heard about called Medem, which is a big music convention in Cannes, France, that they hadn't done it the last few years because of uh, COVID when they shut everything down. But uh, it started in uh, the 70s and ran every every year, I think, uh, except until uh, COVID happened. And so th the year after we did Monkey Medicine, I went to my first medium in uh, Cannes to license Monkey Medicine and uh, licensed it uh, to Ace Records for the UK and uh, Line Records for Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. And anyway, that kind of clued me in. So I thought, okay, well, so I raised a little bit of cash and went to Austin and did the album you're talking about, Haley's uh, mm -hmm. Comet, with my brother on, on guitar, Glenn Fukunaga on bass, who later you've heard on all sorts of things. He's played with Dixie Chicks and he's been premier bass player around Austin for years. And uh, a drummer named Mark Singer. And we'd, we'd all been playing live. They'd been playing live with me some around Texas. So those songs are pretty worked up before we went in the studio because didn't have a lot of money to spend, couldn't do it. Uh, we had to do it down and dirty. So happened that uh, uh, Craig, uh, what's Craig's last name? All the time I forget. Uh, engineer, producer, not from Austin, but was there at the time. Uh, he, he was around there. He'd worked with, I think, Blondie and some, some of the East Coast groups. So he engineered and um, produced it, but really it was just pretty much, you know, doing it a minimum of overdubs. Uh, you know, there were overdubs, but it was, it's pretty quick. Uh, we, and then I took it over to meet the next medium and then licensed it to Deutsche Grammophon for Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. And they put it out on their Polydor label. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, then I toured uh, Europe again with Chipolina and Gravenitis. And then did another East Coast tour with Chipolina and Gravenitis and Merle Saunders on keyboards on points. But uh, then there was a big gap. Uh, actually, ah, you referred to the Post Spirit Volume 1, 1974 to 1978. Well, you're probably thinking, is there a volume two? Right. <laughs> yes, there, there is going to be a volume two. And mostly what that's going to consist of is uh, in about 83 or 84, as a follow-up to uh, this Haley's Comet record, I would, Andy Johns, who you may, if you're into classic rock, you may know who he is from having engineered three Led Zeppelin albums, three Rolling Stone albums, uh, produced Van Halen. It's, his discography is ridiculous if you ever get a chance to look at it. Uh, he's, he's Glenn's brother, right? Glenn's little brother, right? Yeah. Uh, and he came down to Texas and we went, uh, there's a guy that had a mobile truck 
Theorem, and it had the first two 24-track Sony digital machines in the United States. And we took that mobile truck out to a friend of mine's ranch uh, about an hour away in Chapel Hill, Texas. And we had Donnie Wynn, Robert Palmer's drummer, uh, Glenn Fukunaga again on bass, uh, my brother on some guitar, uh, Pat Thrall uh, on guitar, who had been in uh, used Thrall Band and a couple other things. Later played with Meat Love and all sorts of stuff, but a uh, really great guitar player that Andy knew. And uh, Aaron Zygman uh, played some keyboards, who now has become a big movie uh, music writer. Mm -hmm. And we did, had quite an adventure out there at the ranch, and but it really is good stuff. And we, we thought we had a deal with uh, Columbia for a moment. It didn't happen. And right about that time, I became a father, right in 1985, my son was born. And I was just saying, okay, I'm doing a lot of cool stuff uh, in music, but it's not really paying the bill. I'm a father now. I better bear down on this law thing. And uh, so those tapes I did with Andy in the 80s, those have never been released either, you know. And so it's my goal to get those things out too because there's some really good, good plan, good stuff on there. Now, because it was done in 1984, it's got an 80s sound to it because that's the way it was produced and everything. So those of you who like 80s music, you might uh, like the way it was <laughs> Yeah. No, that... that uh, I'm okay, then you got to hear this stuff. I'm, I'm sure it would sound great. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, my favorite song that I heard on uh, Staheli's Comet, which was Ice on Fire, which was uh, interesting because it's kind of this reggae uh, track. And um, I also thought it was interesting because uh, a couple of years ago, you reissued Staheli's Comet under the new name. I guess it was Al Staley and 10K Hours. Yeah, 10,000 um, Hours, yeah. And, uh, but there's a, a remix of Ice on Fire, and I think I actually might have liked the remix a bit better. But anyways, how did, how did the track come together? Well, just so I don't forget to tell you how the remix came, really what that was is that was Andy Johnson. We took that basic track from the uh, uh, Staley's Comet album, but then yeah, Pat Thrall did some crazy shit on there that's really cool. You know, that's right. That's why he liked it. I mean, I'm not even quite sure how he did it, uh, but what he'd have to do, we have to bring him in on the interview, but uh, it, it that's what happened. So we really did it. And because I owned the, uh, the other album, I didn't have to get rights from anybody. I wrote the song and I'd owned that and I had licensed it and the license was up anyway. And so we were going to put Ice on Fire uh, on that, what was to be that album with, with Andy. Right. And so when I reissued uh, um, that album on Steady Boy, the, uh, I thought, well, let's give them a little something extra. Let's 
give them two versions of Ice on Fire. And I'm with you. I mean, it's it's hard not to like that. Uh, so, but the way this, uh, I don't know, the way the song was written, uh, I don't know, I just had never written a song with that, that kind of feel. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was probably the, the era of the police and all that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was probably... Yeah, I, I was going to say it kind of reminded me of uh, Walking on the Moon by the police. That was sort of yeah, a track. I never really, I got to listen to it and think of that song in particular, but uh, I loved that band. That was mm-hmm. my favorite band probably of that era. Anyway, now, now you're giving me something to go back and listen to. Yeah, it's on it's on Regatta de Blanc, so uh, right. yeah. Um, now uh, we can jump forward into the present here. Uh, you released a brand new album this year called Somewhere in West Texas. What's the story behind this new record this for you? Is, it was an accidental album, actually, uh, <laughs> because uh, I've been I've been performing live steadily for, well, actually, Freddie Steady Kirch, uh, who has Steady Boy Records, and uh, is the drummer that played with Jerry Jeff Walker. He played with all sorts of people over the years, and including his own bands. He has his own little label. He's, he's kind of responsible. Well, not kind of, he's responsible for getting me out of mothballs and out playing again, putting that album out. Is that, uh, he came to me however many years ago, that was 15 years ago or something and said, look, you know, that album you did that only came out in Germany, it's never been released over here. Why don't you let me put it out on my label? I said, okay. So, he put it out and then he said, okay, now you got an album that you got to do some gigs. <laughs> Here, come sit in with my band. We know four or five year songs. And okay, well, I'll do that. Well, then next thing I knew, he, he, he was encouraging me to go start doing some gigs. And I didn't know if anybody would care or be interested. And I started doing it. Turns out people did care. They liked, they respond to the songs. And so for, uh, and then later after that, I did. You probably saw I did one EP with uh, Freddie and Cam King because they had had a band called Explosives. So Al Staley and the Explosives, we did an EP where we did a remake of Cadillac Cowboys off the Feedback album, and then uh, a few other things. And uh, but then I hadn't been back in the studio until the pandemic. Because we have a, I live in Houston, but we have a, another place out in far west Texas, out close to Big Bend National Park in a little town called Marathon, or as the locals call it, Marathon. Mm-hmm. So I have to be true to my school. Uh, and it's about 20 minutes from a town called Alpine and another 20 minutes to Marfa, that you've probably heard a lot about. Uh, and I was sitting out there and I was thinking, we were out there for months solid. And I was thinking, you know, I got all these songs I keep saying I'm going to record and I haven't done them. And I know two good players in Marfa and I've heard there's a studio there. So I called up uh, Fran Christina, uh, who was used to be the Fabulous Thunderbirds drummer on all the records you, all their hits, everything you ever heard. Mm-hmm. And he and his wife live in Marfa and he rarely plays anymore because he uh, his wife's a famous painter out there julie speed 
and he helps her with a lot of her lithographs and various things. And he built a house that they, really cool house they've got. At any rate, he, I think, promised her he wouldn't go on the road anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, and then Scrappy Judd Newcomb uh, is a guitar player that is well known in Austin, played with Ian McCloggins Bump Band. He's uh, played, well, recently he played, not only played on, but he produced Slade Cleaves, a most recent album. And uh, I said, Scrappy, how do you how do you manage living in Marfa and working as much as you do in the Austin area? He said, I bought a used Tesla. Mm -hmm. so, because it's about, you know, it's about a six hour uh, drive to Austin uh, from, of course, you live in Canada, so you're used to big spread out. Like yeah. Texas, but, uh, yeah, but it's, it's about a nine-hour drive from Houston. You go to Houston to Marathon. But at any rate, they said, yeah, there's the studio here. Uh, well, yeah, we'll hook you up with a guy named, uh, with the interesting name of Gory Smelly. Huh. <laughs> his, real, his real first name is Gregory, but everybody calls him Gory. And his real last name is Smelly. And uh, at any rate, Wonderful guy had this little studio there, and I was thinking about just going and demoing these songs. We had one rehearsal at uh, France, and went in and did six tracks in one day, one six basic tracks, and uh, went back and did a few overdubs, and and really they encouraged me to do the album. They said, "Look, these are these are really good songs." You, you have, Come back with five or six more, and you'll have an album. And uh, so I did that, and so it, it really—it was just kind of organically. It organically came about. I wouldn't, and it probably—it was probably better that way because it wasn't like okay, we're going in now to do an album, and you know, yeah, all, all that the stuff that, that we're just going in to lay these songs down. And, yeah. And uh, and these guys are good and and I oh I almost forgot the bass player. Well, before uh, he doesn't live in Marfa, but Scrappy said, okay, uh, Chris Marish is coming to town to do another session with me, uh, and then after that we can do your thing. And I said, huh? Well, I asked Chris if he wants to play bass because I don't really want to play bass on this because I wrote the songs and acoustic guitar and I went, that's what I want to do. And I'd seen Chris and Scrappy play together a lot because of a guy named Johnny Nicholas. I don't know if you know Johnny is, but he's really good, uh, uh, really good roots guy and, and a client of mine too. So I'd seen, seen them play with and saw how good they were together. I said, yeah, see if Chris wants to play. So uh, we added him to the mix and I don't know. I mean, like that, that's something good is going to happen. You know, the first song on there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. First time we played it, that, that might have even been a first take. I, that first or second take. First time we ever played it together, it just sounded like a record all of a sudden. Right. The the thing that blew my mind about Scrappy is, uh, are you a guitar player yourself? Or I what? am. Yeah. yeah. You can tell me what you think, but I was smiling as that track was. That was the first song we recorded. I think. And I was smiling as that track was going down. It 
what Scrappy was playing because you know it wasn't do it wasn't doing like just laying down a rhythm track. Okay, now I'll come back and do fills. Most of the most of those cool things he's doing on that track, he was doing as the track was going down. Mm-hmm. So combination rhythm licks, it's all kind of together, and it was it really so it kind of blew my mind because. And at any rate, Scrappy, he became so instrumental in all this putting it together. He, he got so committed to the, that I said, you know, I said, look, I'm naming you the producer of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because he really did the heavy lifting and, and was really involved. And Fran, the guy who didn't think, when I first asked him, he said, you know, I don't play much anymore you know i don't uh, you know my chops are down i said oh, come on brand you can play on a couple this is just demos and he got so into it and he was coming back for the hangout for the uh, vocal overdubs and stuff and <laughs> any rate everybody just got along it was it was so much fun and that that's what it's great because you can if you're in the studio recording with the wrong people as you probably know uh, hopefully you've, you've never been in the studio with the wrong people or the wrong situation it cannot be fun. It, mm-hmm. can be, it can be tedious, and uh, but it was fun with these guys. And I think it kind of, the, the proof is in the pudding. I think it sort of sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely does have kind of a spontaneous sound to it, I, I would say. Um, and uh, there was one track I wanted to talk about specifically, but... Um, uh, you, you made a few videos for, for the album and the one that kind of caught my eye was Mercy of the Moon. And it, it was interesting to learn more about that track because I guess you had previously recorded that song as a single before this album. Actually, it was, it was a demo. It, okay. it, it, it was something I did uh, back uh, in the 80s. And it was a good recording, I thought. Uh, you know, it was my brother playing guitar, he did great, and uh, uh, Mark Singer, who I think he's playing drums, and I can't remember if I played bass and rhythm guitar, whatever. Anyway, uh, it was just something I threw out there some years ago when I didn't have a deal or anything, but yeah, it's been it's been out there uh, on Spotify for a while, just, just yeah. Over any uh, physical thing. But the reason I redid it is these guys liked it. So when they heard the song is that we want to, we want to do this too, you know? So, uh, so we did it. And so that's one, but that's, that's kind of the history of it. Right. And then, yeah. How did the, the video come together? Cause it's, it's kind of like a short film in a way. It is. Uh, same guy, Charlie Schwann, who did the first video and this, Look how all this stuff circles back again. He's the grandson of my drummer from college who <laughs> taught me to go into law school, who got me to practice law in the East. Because his mother uh, was my goddaughter because she was born when we were in that band together. They asked me to be the godfather. And so I've been close with that whole family all these years. He uh, grew up in Austin actually was Grew up with Robert Rodriguez's kids, and his his father was uh, uh, Jeff Schwann, was a stunt coordinator and a stunt man, and so he grew up around the film industry, at least the Austin film industry. 
and went to University of Texas Film School. And I guess about, uh, let's see, he just turned 28. So I guess probably about five years ago, uh, or maybe four years, whenever he was graduating, uh, or about to graduate, he called and said, uh, I've got to do a, for my, to, for graduate, graduating, I have to write and direct a film short. And I've written uh, a film short that's based in the 70s. I know you did a lot of music in the 70s. Uh, maybe you have something for me. I said, look, uh, here's my, I'll, I'll send you an invitation to my Dropbox, rummage around, anything you <laughs> find in there, you're welcome to use. And so he ended up, all the music in his film short was mine, except for the best song that's in there, in that film short, my son wrote and produced, because it happened to be in my Dropbox. And uh, so he he produced, uh, he directed this film short, and it got accepted, uh, besides getting him graduated, it got accepted in the Tribeca Film Festival in mm. New York. It won an award in the Crested Butte Film Festival in Colorado. And he's, uh, shortly after that, he moved to L.A. and he's been L.A. He's done other music videos, but he also does editing for Amazon and for other things. You know, he's doing the, the L.A. hustle to try to, and he's really talented. And in fact, you and your fans might want to look him up. It's Schwan, S-C-H-W-A-N, Charlie Schwan. Uh, he's got a website and he's got stuff on Vimeo and other film shorts. But at any rate, he, he did both these videos. And, and for the mercy of the moon, uh, you know, the, the first video you saw, uh, something that's going to happen was just me and Frank Christina and uh, the bass player, Chris. Uh, and for mercy of the moon, which was the second single and focus track, uh, we wanted to do a video, but I said, look, Nobody wants to, it's, it's a romantic song. Nobody wants to see a guy my age probably <laughs> doing a, you know, being a romantic figure in a video. Uh, it's a, so see what you can do. So he came up with the concept that you saw, sort of this young Bonnie and Clyde uh, couple in uh, West Texas. Mm -hmm. Actually, uh, the young woman in that was his girlfriend, who who is an actress out in LA. And... Uh, the other actor we hired him out of, or Charlie hired him out of Las Cruces, New Mexico, and so they came to Marathon, and everybody was. I mean, the, the production value on the both those videos, you would, if you went out, hired a real production company, you, if they could even do it as well as he did it, it would probably cost a fortune. But uh, not only Charlie was so kind to. Uh, do it, but because that wasn't just two guys running around with the camera. It was Charlie. Uh, he brought in his own director of photography. Got two guys to come in from El Paso, one to pull focus, another to do lighting. I mean, it was it was a, it was all done. Each video was done in a day and a half, like mm. something like that, or two, no more than two days. And uh, but also the, all the 
people we knew in Marathon were so wonderful that that ranch that that first one was shot on is uh, like his family has like a 50,000 acre ranch mm-hmm. out there. And then just so happened it had buffalo yeah. on it. So you see the buffalo. In the right. Area. <laughs> uh, and that car, that 71 Grand Torino with the armadillo hood ornament that reminds you of a, a Grand Torino movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that belonged to that belongs to a friend of ours out there, and then the then those that bar scene, the guy that owns that bar, I, everybody just let us use stuff. I mean, Charlie said, "Man, if we'd done something like this in Hollywood, it would have cost a fortune just to rent the locations, to rent the cars." So, any rate, it's all this stuff has been really gratifying on a lot of levels. Uh, get the, get the music out. Uh, but also get it out with people I know that are fun to work with. And then to have the grandson of my drummer uh, from college uh, be the director of the videos. It's, uh, you know, it's pretty cool. Yeah. No, the, it's, uh, the videos are great. And I, I think the music's great, too. So, yeah, it's been, uh, yeah, I think, a good release for you, for sure. We are now going to be entering the guessing portion of this podcast for which it gets its name. Um, Now, uh, just to explain the rules to you, Al, and to any new listeners, I've got a record in this bag here. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you three clues about this album. And then we'll then just do like a game of 20 questions where you ask me yes or no questions to try and figure out what the album is and um you know don't worry if you feel stuck i'm always happy to give clues um so yeah alistair haley are you ready to guess that record do it jackson all right so here are your three clues this album was released in the 1970s it's the only album in this band's discography where every member sings lead vocals at some point and uh, the third clue, this record has a narrative to it. Question one. Okay, I'm going to I'm gonna take a guess. I'm not sure that it's the 70s or it was the late 60s, but a band that sort of meets that, I, I think it meets that everybody's singing, was Moby Gray. It's not them. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Question two. Okay, everybody sings a vocal. Um... Uh, American band? They are not an American band. Question three. Uh, UK band. They are a UK band. Question four. Everybody sings, well, it wouldn't wouldn't be, uh, is it a three-member band? It's not. Question five. Four members? Four members. Question six. Was it the, the Beatles? It's not the Beatles. They did all sing, though. They did, yes. But they, <laughs> they were broken up by the time this album came out. <laughs> okay, well, that, that's another good clue, I guess. Yeah. Question seven. Let's see. A four-member, was it, um, was Eric Clapton in the band? Eric's not in the band. Question eight. Was it a gu- guitar-oriented band? Uh, yeah, I would say so. 
their their guitar player is uh, definitely highly regarded for sure. Question nine. I don't think it was the not the Yardbirds. Uh, let's see what custom. Everybody sang a lead vocal. Yeah, you're. Uh, <laughs> just okay. Um, man, you are stumping me. Okay, give me give me one other clue. Okay. Um. Let's see. I, I don't know if this helps or not, but uh, I, when I mentioned one of the clues that the album has a narrative, it's the uh. second album that this band made that had a narrative. Was it hard rock? Um, I would say these guys uh, definitely were pioneers in harder stuff for sure. Um, here, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a good hint. All right, they're probably the top band that came from the mod movement of the mid '60s. Oh uh, well. Question ten. That would have to be the Who. It is the Who. <laughs> and the album. Ah, uh, Tommy. Not Tommy. No. Uh, well, that was a narrative, but let's see. Uh, I can't remember the title, but I remember. I think I remember what the. Well, I uh, I think you're on the right track. It was Quadrophenia. Yes. Quadrophenia. Um, yeah. So this uh, this was uh, yeah. All four members sing lead vocals, and it's got a narrative. Um, I didn't realize Keith sang. Well, although, like I mentioned to you earlier, I did play on his only solo. Well, yeah, yeah, it it is. I'm not uh, sure I would call it singing. (laughs) It's the only uh, Who album where he sings lead vocals. And before we talk about Quadrophenia itself, um, I purposefully saved the conversation about Keith Moon until now. Because, uh, you know, I knew that you had worked with him. So I figured, oh, who album would be a good one to talk about? But anyways, yes. So you worked on Keith Moon's solo album uh, called Two Sides of the Moon back in 1975. And uh, you wrote the opening track called Crazy Like a Fox. And that blew me away because, uh, like, I'm a huge Who fan. And I would definitely say, like, the peak of my Who fandom was in high school. Like, you know, they were one of the bands that I just listened to all the time back then. So I was like consuming everything about the band, including the solo albums. I remember checking out Keith's album and I have to say Crazy Like a Fox was kind of the only track where I was like, yeah, this one's pretty good. Um, And so I've known about this song for years and I only found out like a week ago that it was you that wrote it. So it was kind (laughs) of crazy how it's like you know, I've known this song for years and now I'm talking with the guy who wrote it. So yeah, like what, uh, how did you get involved working with Keith? Okay. Yeah. You're going to like this because it, it is kind of interesting. Uh, my brother, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when he left, you know, after the Staley brothers, when he joined Jojo Gunn, uh, they were in the studio doing some recording. I went down to one of the sessions and their engineer was a guy named John Stronach. And I heard him mention Hey, next week I'm you know I'm starting an album with Keith Moon. I said, really? I said, who who's producing it? He said, Mal Evans. I right. said, Mal Evans, the Beatles roadie, the guy that we saw in all the movies. Yeah, the guy with hard rim glass. He said, yeah. I said, well, do they have all the songs? And he said, I don't think so. Uh, so I might have something for him. Uh, he said, well, come down to the record plant on Wednesday and I'll introduce you to Mal. 
So I had this song. I tell you the truth, I didn't really value it that much. I'm <coughs> crazy like it. It's just kind of a cute little rock pop rock mm-hmm. song. Uh, but I had a little demo of it. And then I wrote another song. I don't even remember what it was, especially for the occasion. I think I played that from Mal first. I don't know. Now I played him crazy like a fox. And he said, huh, I could see Keith doing that. We'll, we'll cut it on Friday. This was Wednesday. Right. <laughs> I said, man, this is the way song plugging should always be, but never has been since. Right. Uh, so I said, well, do you have the musicians lined up? He said, well, no. And I said, well, of course, I know the song. And uh, my brother who's played it with me before. He plays guitar with Jojo Gunn. He said, oh, let's get let's get all of Jojo Gunn to play on it. So I call up the guys and say, you want to do a Keith Moon session on Friday? And, of course, the answer was yes. And so we go down there that day. And besides me and Jojo Gunn, uh, there were two other musicians that Mal had called out. Sitting next to me, I was playing acoustic six string. Sitting next to me playing acoustic 12 string was Spencer Davis. And mm-hmm. out, we were in a little isolation room. And out in the big room, uh, all of JoJo Gunn, their drummer, another set of drums for Keith. And like I said, my brother on electric guitar, Jesse Ed Davis, had been called in too. He was there. Uh, although the the solo you hear on the record is my brother, not just mm. him. Uh, and that's the way we recorded the basic track. They, that's why they wanted to do it. Two drums, two electric guitars, two acoustic. I mean, that's pretty unusual. Yeah. But the way they did it. Well, okay, so then I got out the studio, I had the lyric written out for Keith because I mean, he could have probably only heard it the day before, you know, uh, and put it on a music stand. I had the headphones on and kind of cueing him where to come in. And he's, he's out there with, he's got a bottle of Cavassier in one hand and <laughs> he's reading around. So I'm cueing him and he goes, stand back. You've got to give the door room to move. Because she's crazy like a fox. And that fox got her eyes on me. Anyway, it, you couldn't really call it singing, but it was he was being Keith Moon, which is exactly what you wanted him to be. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, they, that was it. And then they, they started calling me back for more sessions to play acoustic guitar. So I ended up playing on about half the album. And one, you'll appreciate this, Ben, uh, Big Who fan. One memorable moment for me. Not on tape. Uh, but while the engineer was uh, changing reels of tape on one of the songs we were doing, one of the sessions. So I was sitting there with the cans on. Keith's out there. We were waiting for him to change reels. It's on acoustic guitar. I started going ding, 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 ding. You know, like my generation. All of a sudden. Oh, yeah. Keith comes in, and all of a sudden, I'm playing My Generation with Keith Moon. Like that. Nice. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll remember this. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it, it was a trip because I uh, got to know Keith a little bit. Uh, my girlfriend and I went up to his 
I also had dinner one night with he and his girlfriend, the Danish girl that was on the cover. And actually, it was it was with her to the end, I think. Mm. And, um, and, and you know, it's, he, and I never really saw him get crazy, you know. Right. Uh, I don't doubt any of the stories I heard. But what you'll find this interesting because, you know, playing on the record, I started noticing he wasn't playing drums that much. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, you know, Keith Moon solo record, you're not playing drums very much, you know, uh, what's going on? And he said, well, when we're doing the Tommy movie, uh, he said, uh, me and, uh, what was the, what was the kind of gruff actor that uh, was in that movie? Uh, oh, man. Tough looking guy. Uh, I'll take that with a minute. But at any rate, he said, we were in full makeup and costumes and stuff, and we took a, we had, had a break, and so we went across from the studio over to the local pub, and we were in this pub, and uh, some of the locals were giving us some shit, and we got into it, and next thing I knew, this guy, it pinned my hand to the table with an mm. ice pick. Mm. And, kind of messed up one of my ligaments or stuff, so I'm kind of having trouble with my hand. And I said, yeah, you do realize you're Keith Moon, right? The, a drummer, and yeah, that's what you do. Don't you think you should see a hand specialist about this? You know? Oh, well, I don't know. You know, I, 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 I haven't read all the books about Keith, but I've never heard anybody tell that story. I don't, since you're a Who fan, have you ever seen that? No, no, but that would check out if he wasn't, because I know he he didn't really play drums on that solo album, um, so that would he check out. Some, but he didn't play much. You know, yeah, like I said, he played on Crazy Like Fox, but but Curly was playing also, mm-hmm. and uh, and I know he was so it, he played some, but it not it's not what you would expect for Keith Minow. So that's why I'm sure it wasn't that successful because he was. He was doing Beast Boy songs, and he was, uh, yeah. <laughs> and you would, if, if nothing else, you would expect to hear Keith Moon kind of going crazy, yeah, at least a few times. You know? I know he was a big fan of surf music, so that was it. Might have been kind of a passion thing for him to do an album with like Beach Boy stuff on it and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, no, and I mean it. Uh, it's an, it's really a cool album because. You know, like um, some of the people that were on it, like, of course, Ringo Starr, David Bowie, um, Joe Walsh, Mal Evans, as you mentioned. And, you know, I I think for yourself being on that album, it's, of course, very good company to be in. But probably the coolest thing to think about is the fact that the album is like mostly covers. So your original is one of the few on there. And to top it off, you know, you and John Lennon both submitted songs for Keith Moon to do. Like that's that's just got to be kind of wild to think about there. Well, I'm I'm glad you said it uh, mm-hmm. because yeah, it, when it came out, I was thinking, wow, John Lennon gave him a song that had never been recorded before, and, and mine, mine is the first song on the album and a single. Okay, I, I guess I think more of the song than I originally thought of most. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Um, now, anyways, back to our 
discussion on uh, Quadrophenia. I'll include some facts about the album for any listeners who may not be familiar with it. Quadrophenia is the sixth album by The Who. It was released on October 26, 1973. Uh, And the double album was the group's second rock opera, which is an album that, of course, has a shared narrative across all of its songs. Uh, It's one of the band's highest charting albums, reaching number two in both the U.S. and U.K., and it was later adapted into a film version in 1979. Um, Now, back when I mentioned I was a huge Who fan in high school, I definitely remember listening to this album a lot. And, you know, the the things I kind of like about it is the fact that it's this big concept album. And that's something that I loved about The Who was that they pushed boundaries like that. Um, You know, also the production is incredible. Like, you know, this album is turning 50 years old this year and it sounds like it was recorded yesterday. Um, And I, I also just think like the songs really stand on their own because like when you compare it to Tommy, which does have some songs that stand on their own, I feel like Tommy has a bit, it's kind of hard to listen to those songs individually. Whereas Quadrophenia, I feel like you can pick any song off of that album and enjoy it. Um, now, do you, uh, like what, uh, do, if you remember any of the tracks off of Quadrophenia, do you have any favorites from what, it? What, what were the big tracks? Let me, uh, consult the record here uh of course uh the real me um got uh, 515 and love rain over me those, those were probably i would say like the three big hits from that record well, I, i've got a confession to make I, I i never even though that was their most popular album, i'm more familiar with the earlier right uh, <laughs> albums and really never listened to it now you're making me Feel like I better go back and listen to Quadrophenia. I didn't realize it was uh, maybe their best best album, but uh, you know some of their early stuff, which yeah, definitely it wasn't as good as but it was it was fun, you know, like you know, uh, you know they had all those the Who Sell Out album, you know, mm-hmm. that, yeah, probably like in your high school because it was kind of like uh, yeah, I I um, the earlier stuff is is definitely. I think interesting for the fact that in a way it's kind of like the precursor to punk, you know, like my, my generation is a punk song uh, all the way. Um, But yeah, no, I, I definitely, I think I definitely leaned more towards like the Tommies and the who's next and uh, who's next. Uh, There's some brilliant production on that. mm -hmm. Um, So I guess. uh, Yeah. The way they use the, the synthesizers or the sequencers and stuff. And yet still, incredible rock guitar album. Mm-hmm. And I think Qu- Quadrophenia really falls under that same cat. In fact, I think it takes the synthesizer even further. Whereas like on who's next, they used it kind of like as a sequence, like using sequences and samples and stuff like that. Whereas I feel like on Quadrophenia, it was really, um, you know, they were using it more like an instrument, like kind of how you would use a synth more towards the eighties, I guess. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it, it's, uh, so they were real pioneers in that regard. And it was all Pete Townsend, uh, of course, who was doing all the synthesizer stuff. And Quadrophenia is also the only album where he writes or where he wrote the entire album. Um, so it's a very, uh, involved production from Pete's standpoint. Um, 
And it was also, as I talked about, it's the only album where all four members sing lead vocals. And of course, Keith sings a song on there called Bellboy, which um, in the story of Quadrophenia, he he's like this mod who's kind of disillusioned with himself and he goes and finds the leader of his old gang. And so Keith is kind of playing the part of this old gang leader. And it's, um, you know, like it's kind of the first part, he's like very flamboyant like Keith is, but then it gets to the bridge and he's like really softens up. And I think it shows like he, he, he did have some vocal range and like emotional range to his, uh, singing abilities. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, you know, and you were talking, I guess, going back to Keith, you were talking about, uh, you know, I guess spending time with him and stuff. So he was, you, you never really saw his crazy self. It was, he was sort of more normal guy when you were around yeah, him. I, I tell you, my, uh, my girlfriend at the time that I was living with was, was English and she had been to, uh, she was a journalist and she'd, she'd been to English girls schools and. I get, had sort of a proper English accent, so I don't know if it was because of her, but I found it interesting. We went over there for dinner, just she and I and uh, Keith and his girlfriend. He he was very much the English gentleman. Yeah. yeah come sit over here. Let me get you a bevy. And I mean, he was, uh, and I don't know if it would have been that, or if he was cueing off her uh, accent that was, you know, from it's, it's you're about the class consciousness right. of uh, the way people speak in the UK. So, so I don't know if that was why, but I was kind of surprised at how kind of formal he was. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, and, I, I have seen that, like clips of him where he's talking, oh, yes, got jolly good, yes, yes, oh, bloody brilliant. <laughs> you know, he kind of... He did could he could put on that voice for sure, um, but yeah. Um, and I took an album over there. In fact, I, we ended up spending the night over over there, listening to music and stuff. And and he had told me before I, he was into New Orleans music. And I had I said, did you ever hear this album, New Orleans Home of the Blues? Because that's when I was in high school in the sixties. It was in, in uh, Austin. It was. You went to party. Everybody had that album, and it was it was a compilation of there was Aaron Neville, it was uh, Ernie Cato, it was uh, Jesse Hill. It was it was all it was sort of a compilation of New Orleans acts in the early '60s, and he didn't know it. So uh, I had it on vinyl, and I took it over there and, and played for him. And I forgot to get it when we left, and so <laughs> somewhere in his collection is vinyl is an album. Cool. It's home of the blues, I guess. Yeah. Um, I guess to, uh, to finish off, um, did you, uh, have you ever met anyone else from the who, or was it just Keith? Uh, you know, I think I remember one time my brother and I, uh, briefly meeting, uh, Pete Townsend at the whiskey and go, go, but, uh, no, no meaningful, uh, no stories I can relate uh, from the other guys. Right. Yeah. And I can end up with one more Keith Moon story that I've never heard again before, too. He told sure. me that he had been banned from driving any wheeled vehicle in the UK, in England. 
So he said, what I did, he said, right at the end of my estate is my local pub. So I bought a hovercraft. He said, and I'll just take the hovercraft down to the local pub and bump up against the front door to let me know, let him know that I've arrived. <laughs> yeah. He, um, I, I mean, uh, this one's sort of a well-known story, of course, on, I think it was like his 19th birthday, he drove a car into Holiday Inn swimming pool when they were on tour. And then the, the Who was forever banned from the Holiday Inn because of that. Um, I have heard that one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but he's got a lot of them. Perfect. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of Guess That Record. I want to th thank uh, Alistair Haley for taking the time to come on the podcast. I, uh, you know, I was really, uh, the more I sort of read about your story, I, uh, I really enjoyed it because, you know, I, I'm a musician myself. The podcasting is kind of what I do on the side and, um, you know, I'm really trying to kind of get, get my foot in the door in, in the music industry. And, um, you know, it's, uh, the podcast wasn't sort of a way I thought it would happen, but it's, it's been a good avenue for me. And I could sort of relate to your story about how you're a musician, but you got the, the law stuff to sort of keep you involved in that sort of thing. So yeah, it was great to speak with you. Thank you. You're a great interviewer. So uh, are you in a band now? What's it called? It is uh, Jackson Reed and the Silverbirds. And uh, check that out. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you've got a great, uh, no matter what happens with your music, you're, you're a great interviewer. So something's going to work out for you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and of course, you should check out Al's new album, uh, Somewhere in West Texas, which you can get on CD or whichever streaming platform you prefer. And where can the listeners follow you on social media? Uh, well, I'm uh, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, alstahaley.com is the web, the music website. Uh, also have a law website, uh, but the uh, that's the music website. And actually, there's going to be vinyl. Uh, we were supposed to uh, uh, get the vinyl back from the plant uh, the middle of September. Not quite sure what the rela uh, release date is, but that will be in the works. Cool. Awesome. And uh, hopefully, I'll, maybe I can come do some gigs in Canada. I'm going to be up on the uh, East Coast for a couple of uh, gigs uh, late September. But cool. Anyway, see you down the road. And thank you very much. Yeah, for sure. As we finish up our 10th episode here, I want to say thank you to our fantastic listeners for tuning in to another episode. Make sure you leave a review wherever you listen. And if you have any friends that love music, tell them to check us out. You can also follow us on Instagram at Guess That Record. Remember to keep rocking, and we'll see you on the next episode of Guess That Record. <laughs>